Chapter Five, Part One of Twenty Years of the Republic, eighteen eighty five to nineteen hundred five, by Harry Thurston Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Presidency of Benjamin Harrison, Part One. Benjamin Harrison was inaugurated in the midst of a violent rainstorm, which, continuing all through the day, converted the streets of Washington into a muddy lake. While the oath of office was being administered, Mr. Cleveland good-naturedly held his umbrella over the bared head of his successor, and when the new president stepped forward to pronounce his inaugural address, the torrential splashing of the rain made his words inaudible to the sixty thousand men and women who were huddled about the capital, drenched to the skin and shivering in the raw east wind. Superstitious persons spoke of the Harrison hoodoo, and recalled the fact that President William Henry Harrison had died within a few weeks after his inauguration as the result of a chill contracted on that day. There was much criticism of the ceremonial arrangements which had been unintelligently planned. Members of the House of Representatives complained bitterly of the insolence with which they were treated by the employees of the Senate, and they even discussed the subject afterwards in a heated debate upon the floor of the House. The procession from the Senate chamber to the east front of the Capitol was so badly managed that it degenerated into an unseemly scramble. The customary review, in which nearly 40,000 men defiled before the President, was shorn of its impressiveness by the condition of the streets and the bedraggled appearance of the paraders. Altogether, the inefficiency of man seemed to combine with the disfavor of the elements to render this day of Republican triumph inauspicious. Mr. Harrison's very long address contained, in addition to the usual rhetorical passages, several paragraphs that were of interest as foreshadowing his future policy. He spoke of the development of the new navy and said that the construction of a sufficient number of modern warships and of their necessary armament should progress as rapidly as is consistent with care and perfection in plans and workmanship. A general approval was given to the protective theory of the tariff, but on this head he probably thought it unnecessary to speak at length. There were a few sentences relating to the trusts. The evil example of permitting individuals, corporations, or communities to nullify the laws because they cross some selfish interest is full of danger, not only to the nation at large, but much more to those who use this pernicious expedient to escape their just obligations or to obtain an unjust advantage over others. They will presently themselves be compelled to appeal to the law for protection, and those who would use the law as a defense must not deny that use of it to others. If our great corporations would more scrupulously observe their legal limitations and duties, they would have less cause to complain of the unlawful limitations of their rights or of violent interference with their operations. Regarding the matter of appointments to office, Mr. Harrison was very frank. Though he pledged himself to enforce fully and without evasion, the civil service law, he added for the encouragement of good party men. Honorable party service will certainly not be esteemed by me a disqualification for public office. It is entirely creditable to seek public office by proper methods and with proper motives, and all applicants will be treated with consideration. Persistent importunity will not be the best support of an application for office. I hope to do something to advance the reform of the civil service. The ideal, or even my own ideal, I shall probably not attain. Retrospect will be a safer basis of judgment than promises. The President established himself very quietly in the White House. He was far from being the object of that sort of public interest and curiosity which Mr. Cleveland had experienced. 
This was due, of course, partly to the fact that he was not, in politics, altogether a nobus homo. Though not particularly well known in the East, his public career had been a long and honorable one. As colonel of an Indiana regiment in the Civil War, he had served with conspicuous gallantry heading a bayonet charge at Resaca and commanding a brigade at Kennesaw Mountain. Because of his share in the operations about Nashville in 1864, he had been brevetted a brigadier general of volunteers for ability and manifest energy. After the war, he practiced law and was elected official reporter to the Supreme Court of Indiana, publishing subsequently a volume of judicial decisions. In 1876, he made his first appearance in politics as the Republican candidate for governor, failing, however, to secure an election. In 1880, he was sent to the United States Senate, where he served upon several important committees and won some reputation as a clear and forceful reasoner. With this record, and because his personal character had not been an issue in the presidential campaign, it was natural that he should, as president, be made the subject of fewer pen pictures and anecdotes than his predecessor. But still another reason was to be found in the fact that his personality was less remarkable. At the time of his inauguration, he was in the 56th year of his age. Almost abnormally short of stature, he seemed, nevertheless, to be taller than he actually was, owing to the length of his body and the dignity of his manner. Sturdy of frame, he enjoyed vigorous health. A grayish beard, cut nearly square, covered a goodly portion of his face. His neck was so short as to give his head the appearance of being set directly upon his shoulders, and he usually held his chin down and partly drawn back upon his somewhat protuberant chest a circumstance which led the irreverent to liken his appearance to that of a powder pigeon. If, however, he was not particularly impressive, his bearing was nevertheless the bearing of a gentleman, and he was one with whom not even an intimate friend would have dreamed of taking liberties. Mr. Harrison, unfortunately for himself, had two separate and distinct manners. With the members of his own household, and a very few others, he was genial, hearty, and spontaneously cordial. But to the rest of the world he exhibited a wholly different and most unsympathetic demeanor. His tone and manner were as cold as ice. He lacked that most delightful of all personal gifts, responsiveness. To strangers, and even to political friends who had to do with him, he appeared almost ungracious in his aloofness and indifference. Those who talked with him were met with a frigid look from two expressionless steel-gray eyes and their remarks were sometimes answered in a few chill monosyllables devoid of the slightest note of interest. The President had also some rather unpleasant little personal traits and habits which offended many of his visitors, so that, on the whole, an unfavorable impression got abroad with regard to Mr. Harrison as an individual. The whole matter was rather strikingly summed up by one who knew him well in these two sentences. Harrison can make a speech to ten thousand men, and every man of them will go away his friend. Let him meet the same ten thousand men in private, and every one will go away his enemy. President Harrison was a man of much intellectual ability. He had the mind of a trained lawyer, acute, penetrating, and analytical. Something of the casuistry of the advocate at times appeared in what he wrote and said, but in the main he was eminently fair. An uncompromising adherent of his own party, he accepted its policy without question and defended it without reservation. Note 1. Page 170. This he could do the more readily in that his intellect, though cultivated, lacked breadth, so that his views of public questions were often narrow ones. 
He showed, indeed, during the first year of his presidency a certain absorption in minor interests, and a fondness for fussing over questions relating to petty patronage and to all the minutiae of politics. This tendency he afterwards largely overcame, for in him, as in most American presidents, the pressure of great responsibility gradually broadened and developed his whole nature. His integrity was never questioned, and this inherent honesty often made it hard for him to endure the companionship of many whose good will it was politic to conciliate. He felt, indeed, a strong personal dislike for some of the most influential leaders of his party, and though in his official intercourse with them he tried hard to treat them with cordiality, he did it with so bad a grace that his actual sentiments became perfectly well known. As a public speaker, President Harrison attained to an unusual degree of excellence, in fact, more truly so than any other president since Garfield. While in the Senate he had always been listened to with interest, but at that time he had not yet matured his powers. There were invariably traces of formality and heaviness, and while he was always dignified he was seldom graceful. His phraseology sometimes suggested the lay exhorter, the Presbyterian elder, or the leader of a prayer meeting. One of his locutions was, I lift up a prayer, an expression which some of the newspapers caught up and rang the changes on with malicious glee. After his nomination, the party managers, who at first regarded him somewhat in the light of a respectable figurehead, urged him to be silent during the campaign. Note 2, page 171. But to this cautious advice he paid no attention and when delegations visited him at his home, he made short, off-hand speeches, which were so neat and telling as to be regularly reported in the press, and to furnish many effective texts to his followers. In all, he delivered ninety-four of these impromptu addresses, and surprised even those who knew him by his facility and felicity. As president, he never made a flat or feeble speech, nor one composed of platitudes. His oratory was marked by ease and finish, and a certain geniality of tone which by no means belonged to his ordinary conversation. In 1891, he made a journey through the South and often addressed the throngs that greeted him. Here he was surrounded by those who were politically his opponents and against whom he had fought at the time of the Civil War. It was no easy matter to speak offhand under conditions such as these without saying something that would give offense, or without descending to the most obvious banality. Yet President Harrison never once did either, but rose above all criticism in a series of little speeches that were gems of occasional oratory, graceful, winning, suggestive, and tactful to a degree. Note 3, page 172. In the longer addresses which he made while he was president, the same qualities were noticeable, and sometimes there was revealed a touch of that higher eloquence which combines dignity and reason with sincere, unstudied feeling. The new cabinet, with two exceptions, was one of no very marked distinction or ability. The exceptions were Mr. Blaine and Mr. Tracy. President Harrison had been more or less reluctant to give Mr. Blaine a place in his official household. So brilliant, ardent, and magnetic a personality was not likely to lend itself to subordination. The President felt that he might himself be overshadowed by it. In fact, his attitude toward Mr. Blaine resembled that of Mr. Cleveland toward Tilden. The President wished to be master in his own house, and it did not please him to hear Mr. Blaine spoken of continually as the uncrowned king. Nevertheless, he had no choice. Precedent required that he should appoint to the chief cabinet office the man who might have had the nomination had he wished it, and who, it was said, had really given it to Mr. Harrison. 
Mr. Blaine had sent a telegram to his friends while the Chicago convention was in session, and although its contents were kept secret, the Blaine leaders had given Mr. Harrison their support immediately after its receipt. It was claimed that, in return, Mr. Harrison had promised to make Blaine his premier. This was undoubtedly untrue, since such a pledge was quite unnecessary. The President practically had no choice in the matter, and therefore, as it appeared with reluctance and somewhat sullenly, he offered the portfolio of state to Mr. Blaine. Mr. Benjamin F. Tracy of New York, who became Secretary of the Navy, was an eminent lawyer, a veteran of the Civil War. He had been United States District Attorney in New York, and for two years an Associate Justice of the highest court in that state. Surprise was expressed that he should be chosen for the Navy Department rather than for the Attorney Generalship. He was, however, so intelligent an administrator as fully to justify the President's selection of him, and during the next four years he did admirable work in building up a modern fleet. Mr. William Wyndham of Minnesota, the Secretary of the Treasury, was a safe man of moderate ability. He had been, for a few months, a member of President Garfield's cabinet, retiring at the accession of Mr. Arthur and entering the United States Senate for a second time. The new Secretary of War was Mr. Redfield Proctor of Vermont, a wealthy gentleman who had been governor of his own state. Mr. Harrison's Secretary of the Interior was Mr. John W. Noble of Missouri, a veteran of the war and subsequently a practicing lawyer. At the time of his appointment he was little known outside of his own state. The new Postmaster General was Mr. John Wanamaker of Pennsylvania, a rich businessman. To the Attorney Generalship, the President called his former law partner, Mr. W. H. H. Miller of Indiana. Congress had established a Department of Agriculture in addition to the existing executive offices, and this post was now filled by Mr. Jeremiah M. Rusk of Wisconsin, a state of which Mr. Rusk had been governor for seven years. Mr. Rusk was a somewhat picturesque personage. He had been in his early years a farmer, and his quaint and often racy speech still smacked of the soil. He had served all through the Civil War, and had displayed remarkable gallantry at Atlanta and during Sherman's march to the sea, where, like Mr. Harrison himself, he had been brevetted a brigadier general. Next to Blaine, Mr. Rusk was the most popular member of the cabinet. He had a bluff, hearty, unconventional manner. He administered the new department with great success and his frank honesty and quaint utterances endeared him to the masses, who spoke of him with affectionate familiarity as Uncle Jerry. The appointment of Mr. Wanamaker was one that called forth a certain amount of criticism. Mr. Wanamaker was the proprietor of a large shop in Philadelphia, and he was also conspicuous as a religious leader and a promoter of young men's Christian associations and Sunday schools. But during the campaign of 1888, Mr. Wanamaker had both himself contributed and had collected from the rich protected manufacturers of Pennsylvania an immense campaign fund, which he turned over to Senator Matthew S. Key, whose political methods were notoriously objectionable. Mr. Key was then chairman of the Republican Executive Committee conducting the campaign, and the cash provided by Mr. Wanamaker had formed a part of the funds which, in Indiana, had influenced the floaters and consolidated the blocks of five. The contrast between Mr. Wanamaker's piety and the purposes for which his money had been given was a little too glaring to pass unnoticed by his political opponents, though there was no reason for holding Mr. Wanamaker accountable for the use made of the fund by others. Nevertheless, under the circumstances, his appointment to a cabinet office distinctly savored of a commercial transaction. 
His acceptance of the post, therefore, was held to indicate conditions which, as was said by one critic, President Harrison must know and, knowing, must deplore and feel ashamed of. That Mr. Wanamaker will administer the office respectively we have little doubt, and that this will after a while be used as an argument, even by clergymen and religious newspapers, in favor of allowing cabinet offices to be purchased by contributions to campaign funds we have just as little. Nearly all corruption begins under some harmless guise. Votes are always bought for the good of the cause. Decisions are always sold to the right side and we finally get to the comfortable conclusion that not only is God with the big battalions, but that he makes political debauchery one of his instruments for good. Note 4, page 175 Some adverse criticism also arose in certain quarters from the fact that Mr. Wanamaker did not always appear to keep his high political office distinct from the interests of his business. As head of the nation's postal system, he was the absolute chief of thousands of country postmasters. These men were kept reminded by circulars and otherwise that the postmaster-general was also a great retail merchant. When the Pan-American Congress, composed of delegates from all the American republics, was in session, its members visited Philadelphia, and, as a matter of courtesy to the postmaster-general, they made an inspection of his emporium. Upon leaving, each of these gentlemen was presented with a souvenir volume, ornately printed and containing a description in florid rhetoric of the glories of the Wanamaker shop. Following the description was this request, with which, however, Mr. Wanamaker probably had nothing to do. Dear Sir, confident of our commanding position in the mercantile world as leaders in retail commerce, and believing that we have reached the highest point yet attained in our country in the science of retail trading, we beg leave to ask your acceptance of this souvenir of your visit to our place of business, in the hope that it contains information sufficient to warrant its submission to your government as a portion of your report upon the Honorable Congress to which you are accredited. Because of these and similar occurrences, the whole country was amused when the New York Sun gave an exhibition of its impish cleverness at the expense of Mr. Wanamaker. Picking out day by day the flamboyant advertisements of his wares which appeared over his signature in the newspapers, it treated them with great gravity, professing to believe that they had been personally composed by him as serious literary productions, and discussing in terms of aesthetic criticism Mr. Wanamaker's essays on ladies' underwear, his unrhymed poems on walking skirts, his reflections on flannels, and his philosophical musings upon muffs. Note 5, page 176. But while the postmaster-general contributed nothing to the prestige of the administration, the new Secretary of State won laurels for himself and for his chief. The State Department was a post admirably suited to the tastes and intellectual qualities of Mr. Blaine. Like Disraeli, whom in some respects he strikingly resembled, Blaine loved administration on a large scale. He had long been the most conspicuous figure in national politics, and it gratified alike his ambition and his imagination to appear in the still more spacious theater of international affairs. His friends shared his enthusiasm and spoke with proud anticipation of the spirited foreign policy, which was presently to be carried out. Mr. Blaine's opponents, on the other hand, professed a feeling of disquietude. They said that, with regard to the foreign relations of the United States, safety rather than brilliancy was to be preferred in the conduct of affairs. They prophesied that Mr. Blaine, restless, aggressive, and with a love of dramatic effects, would involve the country in some dangerous complication. And to justify this belief, they recalled what had occurred in 1882, when, for nine months, Mr. Blaine had been Secretary of State in President Garfield's brief administration and until President Arthur relieved him. 
the reminder of that time was an interesting one peru and chile were then at war with one another and secretary blaine had used his influence to preserve the territorial integrity and the independence of peru both of which were threatened by the triumphant chileans this action had given great offence to chile and it had been severely criticised in the united states it was mr blaine's misfortune to have excited a suspicion that his motives were not disinterested he had had some casual interviews with an adventurer named shippard and in the course of the negotiations over the chilean affair he had taken up certain claims against peru known as the landro and cochet claims in which shippard was pecuniarily interested Mr. Blaine wrote a dispatch, August 4, 1882, to the American minister in Peru, directing him to notify both the Chilean and Peruvian governments that no treaty of peace between the two countries must be made until the Landro claim should be settled. Note 6, page 177. This dispatch deeply angered Chile, as did the further activities of the secretary at that time. Many thought that had not Mr. Arthur become president when he did, and had he not taken the matter out of the hands of Mr. Blaine, war might have occurred. The whole matter was investigated afterwards by the House of Representatives. Mr. Blaine appeared before a committee of the House, and his appearance led to an exciting scene. Note 7, page 178. A Democratic member, Mr. Perry Belmont of New York, took a leading part in examining Mr. Blaine and he asked such searching questions and seemed so skeptical that at last Mr. Blaine was nettled. Mr. Belmont was a new member of Congress and was, besides, a young and unknown man, while Mr. Blaine was the most eminent of American statesmen. He therefore tried to overawe his youthful cross-examiner by assuming the grand manner. The phrasing of a certain telegram was under discussion. Mr. Blaine declared that the words had been garbled. Mr. Belmont stuck to his own interpretation. I am not in a police court to be badgered, said Mr. Blaine, and he went on to say that Mr. Belmont had intentionally altered the dispatch and was persisting in a falsehood. Belmont's face grew white to the lips and then flamed red with anger. He looked Blaine straight in the eyes, then he said, I believe you are a bully and a coward. It was these incidents, the Shippard connection, the so-called Guano claim, and the strained relations with Chile in 1882, which Mr. Blaine's opponents now brought up again. But most persons regarded them as ancient history and waited with interest to see to what the new Secretary of State would first turn his hand. As a matter of fact, at the very moment when President Harrison was taking the oath of office, there existed in a far quarter of the globe a condition of affairs so critical that it might at any moment plunge the United States into a war with the foremost military power of Europe. To understand this situation, one must recall the succession of events which had made it possible. Ever since the humiliation of France at the hands of Germany in the War of 1870, the latter power had arrogated to itself a sort of supremacy over other nations. Allied with Austria and Italy, the German Empire set no bounds to its pretensions. Russia was quiescent, England was isolated, France was prostrate. Prince Bismarck, as he sat in his chancellery on the Wilhelmstrasse, felt that there indeed was the true umphalus of earthly power. He had despoiled Denmark in 1864, he had humbled Austria in 1866, he had crushed France in 1870. He was now treated with almost servile deference by ambassadors and statesmen. A frown of his, an impatient speech or a curt dispatch, was enough to send the shivers down the back of every foreign minister in Europe. 
no wonder that he had grown arrogant and that all official germans taking their tone from him cultivated a swaggering insolence which paid no heed to others rights or feelings in the early eighties the chancellor was pushing his scheme of planting german colonies in distant lands and any unconsidered trifles of territory which he chanced to find unclaimed were promptly visited by german men-of-war and recorded on the official map as being german soil this policy was quite openly directed against england as the great colonizing power but england was under the spell of germany's enormous self-assertiveness so that downing street seemed timidly anxious to avoid a clash with the autocrat of the wilhelmstrasse in course of time prince bismarck cast his acquisitive eye upon the samoan islands the samoan islands are twelve in number lying in the track of vessels which ply between the american seaports on the pacific coast and australia they have therefore a certain commercial importance and to a naval power a definite strategic value upon the principal island upolu where the chief town apia is situated a number of germans americans and english had settled a hamburg trading firm was established there besides a thriving american business house and a company of scotch merchants in eighteen seventy eight a treaty was made by which the samoan chief or king of that time gave the united states the use of the harbour of pango pango for a naval station as was natural the small foreign community in upolu isolated from the greater world outside and thus thrown in upon itself was rent by the small jealousies intrigues and bickerings which arise when petty interests clash in a petty sphere race prejudice intensified the feeling until apia fairly seethed with pent-up enmities gradually however two distinct factions were formed when the americans and english made common cause against the germans who were the more numerous and who were also unpleasantly aggressive by the year eighteen eighty four it had become clear that germany intended by hook or by crook to get control of the islands and in doing so to ignore the rights of the english and american residents the german consul one herr Stubel, began to manifest extreme activity he had all the morgue and frigid insolence of the true prussian official and moreover he had at his beck several german ships of war which always appeared most opportunely whenever Stubel was carrying things with a particularly high hand the german residents assumed a most offensive bearing toward the other foreigners as well as toward the natives in april eighteen eighty six Stubel raised the german flag over apia and in a proclamation declared that only the government of germany should thereafter rule over that portion of the islands the british consul hesitated to act without instructions but the american representative hoisted the colors of the united states and proclaimed an american protectorate note eight page one eighty one this conflict of authority was serious and led secretary bayard to energetic action a conference at washington between the representatives of germany great britain and the united states agreed that the action of both consuls should be disavowed and that the status quo ante should be preserved in samoa pending further negotiations bismarck however had no intention of abandoning his ultimate purpose or even of abiding by his agreement a new consul herr becker was sent out from berlin and proved to be as obnoxious as his predecessor he planned a stroke that was delivered with prompt efficiency the native king Malietoa was favorable to the english and americans becker seizing upon the pretext afforded by a drunken brawl between the german sailors and a few samoans declared war upon Malietoa by order of his majesty the german kaiser martial law was proclaimed in apia german marines were landed Malietoa was seized and was deported in a german ship 
while a native named Tamasizi, a creature of the Germans, was set up in his place. From that moment events tended rapidly toward a crisis. The American consul, Mr. Harold M. Sewall of Maine, wrote vigorous dispatches to Washington and sent emphatic protest to Herr Becker, who answered him with sneering incivility. The Samoans refused to acknowledge the German puppet king and took to the bush, where the English and Americans furnished them with arms. But in Apia, a German judge was set over the local courts, the captain of a German cruiser was made prime minister, and the German flag again flew over the soil which Germany had pledged itself to regard as neutral territory. A writer of genius, Mr. Robert Louis Stevenson, who was a resident of Samoa throughout these troublous times, has left a minute account of the intolerable bearing of the Germans and of the indignities to which other foreigners were subjected by them. Note 9, page 182. Mr. Sewell, single-handed, resisted their aggressions. The British consul sympathized with him, but the spell of Germans' predominance in Europe seemed to paralyze his will. At last, to punish those Samoans who were in arms against Tamasizi, the German corvette Adler was ordered to shell the native villages and thus to inspire the people with a wholesome dread of German power. Just prior to this time, there had arrived in Samoan waters the United States gunboat Adams under the orders of Commander Richard Leary. Commander Leary was to his very fingertips a first-class fighting man. His name, as Stevenson remarked, was diagnostic. It told significantly of a strain of Celtic blood in the man who bore it. Leary had, indeed, a true Irishman's nimbleness of wit, an Irishman's love of trouble for its own sake, and even more than an Irishman's pugnacity. When he had learned just how things stood in Apia, and when he had noted the bullying demeanor of the Germans, his blood grew hot. Until now, the notes of protest addressed to Becker had been couched in formal phrases. From the moment when Leary took a hand in the correspondence, these notes became suddenly pungent with a malicious and most ingenious wit which made the sacrosanct emissaries of His Imperial and Royal German Majesty fairly gasp with indignation. The diabolical cleverness with which Leary followed up their every move was utterly infuriating, and no less so was his supreme indifference to what they thought or wanted. When the German warship fired rocket signals at night, Leary used to sit on his afterdeck and send up showers of miscellaneous rockets which made the German signaling quite unintelligible. He refused to recognize their appointed king, and in a score of ways he covered them with a ridicule which seemed likely to make them ludicrous even in the natives' eyes. Meanwhile, a German night attack upon the Samoan rebels had been repulsed and several Germans had been killed. Very eagerly, then, did Herr Becker urge the captain of the Adler to bombard the rebel position at Apia. Surely the sound of the cannon and Donner would bring the natives and also the insolent Yankees to their senses. Captain Fritz of the Adler therefore ordered up his ammunition and prepared for the bombardment. Leary's ship, the Adams, was a wooden vessel whose heavy armament consisted of smooth bores, only a few of which had been converted into rifled guns. The German corvette was also wooden, but her guns were of the latest pattern turned out by Krupp. Nevertheless, at short range, this superiority would count for little, and the Adams was commanded by a sailor who would rather fight than eat. At the appointed hour, the Adler steamed out with the German ensign flying at her peak. The Adams followed close upon her heels as if for purposes of observation, but it was noticed that her deck was cleared for action. Soon the Adler slowed down and swung into position so as to bring her broadside guns to bear upon the helpless village. 
instantly volumes of black smoke poured from the funnel of the atoms the long roll of her drums was heard as they beat to quarters and the american ship dashed in between the adler and the shore where she too swung about her guns at port and trained directly on the germans presently commander leary in full uniform and accompanied by his staff boarded the adler his colloquy with the german captain was short and sharp if you fire said he you must fire through the ship which i have the honor to command i shall not be answerable for the consequences so saying he took his leave and returned to his own vessel captain fritz could scarcely believe his ears such audacity had never yet confronted him he could not fire on the village unless he fired through the atoms he knew that his first shot would be answered by an american broadside and that this would be the signal for a war between his country and the american republic he faltered shrinking from so terrible a responsibility and then his heart swelling with humiliation he turned tail and steamed sullenly away that night there was joy in apia and the germans lately boastful went about with shamefaced looks soon afterwards leary set sail for honolulu whence he might send dispatches to his government in his absence the germans tried to accomplish on land what they had failed to do on water it was known that the samoans had gathered in large numbers in the interior of the island and that they were in arms against the king whom germany had tried to force upon them a daredevil american named klein a correspondent of the new york world was with them and acted as a sort of military leader the germans laid a plan to surprise them and to seize their chiefs on december eighteenth eighteen eighty eight long before daylight a battalion of marines was disembarked from the german cruiser and marched stealthily through the forest an hour later the samoans fell upon them and whirled them back to the seashore with a loss of fifty men and several officers the fury of the germans was unrestrained vice-consul blacklock telegraphed to washington soon after germans swear vengeance shelling and burning indiscriminately regardless of american property protest unheeded natives exasperated foreigners lives and property in greatest danger germans respect no neutral territory americans in boats flying american flag seized in apia harbor by armed german boats but released admiral was squadron necessary immediately up to this time the situation in samoa had aroused but little interest in the united states samoa was very far away most americans had never even heard of it but this stirring cablegram followed as it was by detailed accounts of german aggression and of insults to the american flag note ten page one eighty five roused the people to a warlike mood to this mood president cleveland's government responded the warships Nipsic, note eleven page one eighty five and vandalia were hurried off to apia followed shortly by the trenton the flagship of admiral kimberley a fine old sea-dog of the fighting type the british government at last took heart of grace and ordered the cruiser calliope to samoa the germans were no less active and early in march there were anchored off apia besides the vessels just enumerated a german squadron consisting of the adler the eber and the olga all with their decks cleared and their crews ready for immediate battle a single rash act might provoke a mighty war such was the situation when president harrison took office on march fourth four days later it was rumored in germany that the nipsic had fired on the olga 
on march tenth a dispatch from keel which was supposed to have come by way of australia reiterated the report and added that the american vessel had been sunk by a torpedo from the olga a wave of excitement swept over the whole country in san francisco great crowds filled the streets and massed themselves about the newspaper offices to await the posting of further bulletins the tone of the press was one of intense hostility to germany the government at washington began preparing for any emergency that might arise all the vessels of the pacific squadron were notified to be in readiness the new steel cruiser philadelphia was hastily equipped for service but the news when it came was very different from that for which men waited it told of a fearful battle not with human forces but with the elements a fierce typhoon had struck the Samoan Islands on March 16th, and within a few hours, six of the warships that had been anchored in the harbor of Apia were driven from their moorings. The Eber was dashed against a coral reef and sunk. The Adler was capsized. The Olga and the Nipsic were hurled upon the sand, while the Trenton and the Vandalia shattered and dismantled settled to their gun decks in the tremendous waves. The British ship Calliope alone escaped. Her captain, with high courage, staked the safety of his vessel upon the chance of reaching the open sea. Crowding on every pound of steam until her boilers were almost bursting and with her machinery red-hot, the British cruiser fought her way out inch by inch against the hurricane. As she passed the American flagship, Admiral Kimberley led his sailors in three hearty cheers, which were answered by the British seamen, amid the shrieking of the storm. When the typhoon subsided, it was found that few lives had been lost and Admiral Kimberley, parading the band of the Trenton, took temporary possession of Apia to the strains of the National Anthem. Note 12, page 187 End of chapter 5, part 1